Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. So in the last episode, we talked about some of the early antagonists to Joseph Smith, Hadley and Campbell, and we talked about how Hadley's criticism was that Joseph's too illiterate to produce anything because the Book of Mormon hasn't been produced yet, and this is going to be... It's going to be absolutely ridiculous that he would even um, think that he'd be able to produce something like that. Then Campbell, once the Book of Mormon is produced and there are early converts, he says Joseph Smith is a liar who wrote the entire thing. We ended with... Um, with Eber Howe. With Eber Howe. Yeah. And so picking up there, what's what's going on? Yeah, Eber Howe is, is... So he's he's he's... Coming essentially, most of what he's going to say is after Campbell, right? So after Campbell has just dismissed the whole thing as Joseph Smith's fabrication, Howe is going to end up taking a different tack. And um, it starts with his embracing the arguments that are made by uh, uh, the man Dr. Philastus Hurlbut, which we, we, we ended off talking about. We, we teased that. You've been waiting all week. You, <laughs> I can't wait to find out where he got his PhD. And, and uh, I, me, not even Dr. Philastus Hurlbut, you know, uh, uh, University of Colorado, if you're wondering. If you're wondering who to write angry cards and letters to, that's the history department of the University of Colorado. Um, so, so how is going to find his ally in Dr. Philastus Hroba? Now, you might wonder why I keep making reference to him and saying his him as Dr. Philastus Hroba. You know, why do you keep just giving it? Okay, we get it. He's a doctor. And, you know, it, it's important that you know that he's not a medical doctor. You know, and, and you know, you think, well, you know, maybe back then a doctor is more likely to kill you than to save you, most likely. I mean, ask Alvin, you know. And so the fact that he's not a medical doctor, you know, that that doesn't that that means well he might still have some other education. Maybe he's the doctor like I am, right? The kind of doctor that doesn't have, have the ability to help anybody or make any money. But in fact, he's not even that kind of a doctor. His parents name him doctor. So his actual given name is Doctor. And and so it's not a nickname. It's he's not like one of the seven dwarfs named Doc. I mean, he his his parents named him Doctor. So you had to afford him that uh, you know, they had all kinds of weird names back then. I mean, to us. I mean, Martin Harris's brother is named Preserved, you know? I mean, Smucker's Jam Harris, basically, right? I mean, and that's coming from the the, the five the five points of Calvinism, right? The the most important point is the perseverance of the saints, uh, that that final point. And so, he's preserved Harris. In fact, uh, I mean, one of the great Revolutionary War generals is named Return Jonathan. That's his first name, Return Jonathan. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, return. I was thinking his first name was Return, middle or last name. No, yeah, you thought his first name was Return and his last name was Jonathan. Something. No, his first name is Return Jonathan and his last name is Meigs. Meigs. Return Jonathan Meigs. Yeah. Uh, that's because when his uh, parents were courting, his father decided that um, he was, you know, getting too much of the cold shoulder, right? Which. I can only imagine, uh, uh, you know, uh, what that it means in in the 1700s. But, but that he wasn't getting enough requitement of his affections, and so he got up from the parlor and left. And you know, his eventual wife yelled out after him, "Return, Jonathan!" And so they decided to name their first kid that. That that was probably the least important thing you ever heard in your life, honestly. Um, Sometimes. Sometimes on this podcast we go down certain go off on certain tangents. Yes, but I never think this yeah. marks. It's the best one by far. Now, now you want to know what's even better is that because that name return Jonathan becomes kind of popular. There's an early Latter Day Saint whose parents name him Return Jackson because of Andrew Jackson. Even though there's no story surrounding Andrew Jackson where his parents call out to have him return. And and he's actually, we'll tell this story at some point, but he's actually one of the uh, the people who helps defend uh, the, the, the Latter-day Saints and the sheriff, the non-Mormon sheriff of, of uh, Hancock County from a mob that's attacking them. His name's Return Jackson. So, hey, that, there's, you could probably fast forward Really, the rest of, of of the podcast. That was the main point. We actually we planned the podcast around me talking about uh, about return, John. No, the point is, Doctor Flasses Hurlbut is named that by his by his parents. And I guess after giving him a name like Doctor, you want to make sure the whole reason you're giving it to him is so that he has some kind of honor title, right? So you give him a middle name like Flastus because you know he's never going to go by his middle name, right? He's He's got to go by his first name. And it's funny because it actually gives him this uh, this air of education that he certainly doesn't have. In fact, Eber Howe, who is his friend? Who is the person who is working with him to destroy Mormonism? Eber Howe will say of Dr. Falassus Hurlbut that he was full of gab and quite illiterate. Hadley's commentary on Joseph Smith. Exactly. I, I mean, with friends like that, who needs enemies? You know, uh, uh, that he he talked a lot, but was really stupid. I mean, that's, frankly, that's probably what you're rating this on Apple Podcasts right now. Um, so, so uh, Hurlbut is, you know, his parents having him named him that. I've always joked that it would be like, it'd be like me naming my son MVP of the NBA Finals as his first name. And then you'd have to call him that. And so, you know, you'd see him and, and you'd be like, oh, that's MVP of the NBA Finals, Dirk Mott. And, and, you know, and that way I could live my glory days. Well, who was Dr. Falassus Hurlbut? Well, he's a convert to the church from this Ohio period. And he gets sent on a mission to Western Pennsylvania. Well, while he's there in Western Pennsylvania, he commits... Adultery. In fact, according to 
Benjamin Winchester, he commits several adulteries. Then as now, if you commit adultery on your mission, it's a problem. And uh, so we actually have the record of his excommunication, which is uh, June 3rd, 1833. Um, I can just read it to you. It's very brief. A conference of high priests convened in Kirtland in the translating room. Brother Sidney Rigdon opened the conference by prayer. The first case before the conference was that of Dr. Hurlbut who was accused of unchristian conduct with the female sex while on a mission to the East. It was decided that his commission be taken from him and that he no longer be a member of the church of Christ. So just real quick, the translating room, what, they, what was that? They mean uh, where Joseph's translating the Bible in uh, Noel K. Whitney's store. Yeah, that's so. It's the uh, one the upper room, one of the upper rooms of Noel K. Whitney's store is what that references to. Um, so he's excommunicated. Um, like I said, then is now, you know, not something good uh, to do on your mission. Well, he is actually going to uh, ask for his case to be appealed. And, and they did not have the same kind of church court system that we have today. That's the product of, of 180 more years of, of revelation, obviously. But, but they did have the ability to appeal a decision to the president's court or to Joseph Smith personally. And so, uh, they, they, they meet on the topic and Hurlbut is apparently incredibly penitent. He is just, you know, falling all over himself in sackcloth and ashes of how devastated he is that his, his membership has been taken away, begging to get back into the church to the point where the, the people assembled, are really feeling some sympathy as he is, you know, roiling in agony for how heartbroken he is for what he'd done. And the ruling that Joseph makes is that he was properly excommunicated. I mean, he committed adultery. I mean, the the, the claim apparently from Hurlbut isn't even, hey, I didn't commit adultery. It's, hey, I'm really sorry about it, right? Which, you know, that 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 that's his argument. Well, uh as is evident from out, throughout Joseph Smith's life, when people are attempting to obtain mercy, Joseph is pretty ready to give people mercy. And so Hurlbut is, Joseph makes it clear that the bishop made the right decision. You should have been excommunicated. But on account of your extreme penitence, will allow you to be let back into the church. He almost immediately rewards that uh, mercy by going to a nearby town and bragging about the fact that Joseph Smith isn't really a prophet because I was able to fool him into thinking that I was actually sorry for what I'd done and I'm not sorry. And then he immediately proceeded to attempt to commit adultery with someone else. This is a pattern in uh, Hurlbut's life, apparently. Um, he had actually been disciplined from another denomination also for the same problem. Um, well, this time Hurlbut, uh, of course, he, he's excommunicated again. And this time Hurlbut does not go quietly into the night. He is no longer begging at Joseph's feet to be let back into the church, but in fact undertakes himself an attempt to destroy Joseph Smith. 
he is going to publicly breathe out all kinds of threats against Joseph Smith to the point where, at least according to one source, he is publicly saying that he is going to wash his hands in the blood of Joseph Smith. That that's you know that sounds like it's a Malachiah talking you know in in the Book of Mormon right I mean and it's not just Latter Day Saint sources that are recognizing that Hurlbut is making these claims. In fact, a non Latter Day Saint judge is going to rule against Falassus Hurlbut as having made threats to, quote, wound, beat, or kill Joseph Smith. And he's ordered to put up a bond guaranteeing that he won't do any act of violence against Joseph Smith, even though he's publicly said that he's going to. And he's ordered to pay the court costs for the for the court fees and, and surrounding it. He's essentially put on this kind of six months of probation that you aren't going to do anything. Any of these threats of physical violence that you've made against him and his family. And if you, if you do what we're taking the money as well as whatever crime that you, that you commit. Now I, you probably don't need to, you know, you, you probably the most surprising part of everything I just said was that a judge ruled in favor of a Mormon because the, the, the reality is that doesn't happen. That that kind of shows you how serious what what he was doing was, and in fact, we even get this from Joseph himself. I wish I wish you could see this as a, as a video. I could. I'm pulling up Joseph Smith's letter that he writes. He writes it to uh, Missouri, and look, they're having trouble in Missouri. Uh, and 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 Joseph writes to explain the trouble that they're having there in Kirtland. He writes. We are suffering great persecution on account of one man by the name of Dr. Hurlbert. For whatever reason, I love the fact that Joseph misspells his name there. And instead of Hurlbut's not bad enough, he's going to make it Hurlbert. Um, who has been expelled from the church. Uh, I say church, but in fact, uh, Joseph writes church with an I here, as he does several times, um, that he's expelled from the the the, the church. I'm assuming it's because Joseph is from New England. And, uh, you know, even though every church movie we ever watch that portrays Joseph Smith, he has a great Utah accent, the reality is Joseph Smith's not from Utah. Um, in fact, nobody from that time period's from Utah. He's born in Vermont. He grows up in New Hampshire and in upstate New York. What do you think he sounded like? I mean, he, he probably didn't have a nice you know, Western drawl. Um, in fact, he probably wrote church with an I when he was writing in his own handwriting because that's how it sounded to him. Because you don't go to the church, you go to the church. The church is where you go. Um, he did this with Edward Partridge's name too where he spells it wrong. Instead of Edward Partridge, it's, it's, he left the R out. Because it's not partridge, it's partridge. Me and Edward Partridge gonna go to the church, maybe catch a Sox game. I mean, I I don't know if you don't want to think of Joseph Smith talking that way. You don't have to. I don't need to hurt anyone's faith because you're thinking of him as as being a Red Sox fan. But but the reality is, uh, people 
with less education very often tend to try to spell things the way that they sound. I mean, all of our, our kids do this when they learn how to write. You know, we, we, we see why they tried to write, you know, the word knife the way they did. It's just totally wrong. And, and because they haven't figured out how messed up the English language is yet. So, so they have to, they're, they're just feeling their way through it. But anyway, Joseph writes, he's been expelled, that Dr. Hurlbert has been expelled from the church for a lewd and adulterous conduct. And despite us, he is lying in a wonderful manner. And the people are running after him and giving him money to break down Mormonism which much endangers our lives at present. So you can see that he very quickly is becoming a real threat. And, and part of the reason why is, is, you know, circling back around to Eber Howe, is that there is a growing anti-Mormon movement in the Kirtland area. Look, when the four missionaries first showed up, yeah, people thought they were crazy and people thought they were idiots and people thought they were blasphemers. But beyond that, they didn't really care because four people doesn't really affect a community of several thousand until hundreds of people believe what those four people are saying. Now, every Latter-day Saint that either is converted in the county or moves to the county is a real problem because they are actually affecting the the possible political outcome, let alone the interpersonal dynamics of people who once were strong Baptists and now one of the people in your in your family, your brother or your sister, has become one of these crazy Mormons. And there is an anti-Mormon committee that is established in Kirtland. Now, I'm not being pejorative when I say that they're an anti-Mormon committee. They call themselves the Anti-Mormon Committee. So I'm just going to give them the honor of calling them what they call themselves. And Eber Howe will say that during this time period, every legal means was devised to prevent them from spreading and to drive them from, from the county. So there's an organized opposition. As more and more Latter-day Saints move to the area, it affects people politically it affects them economically and 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 that's outside of whether or not it affects them religiously so you might not care about religion at all but what do you care about i care about how much land prices are that matters to me right so even if i don't care about god i care about the fact that these people moving in are affecting that and maybe I don't care about land prices and I don't care about God, but you know what I really care about? Politics. Again, you got to go with me to this 19th century world where people really, really, really cared about politics. It's not like today where people are apathetic and couldn't care less one way or the other. Back then, it was really, really, really important. And the Latter-day Saints tended to vote in blocks. In fact, when, when they talk about every legal means that was taken to try to prevent the spread of Mormonism, one of the things that they do, this is part of the research that I you know, uh, worked with when I was at the Joseph Smith Papers, was in uh, these townships, and, and the township is a weird concept if you're, a, if you're from the West. It's, it's an East, if you're from the East, you know, you're, you're 
you're sitting here saying, I got it. I know all about it. If you're, if you're Richard's brother-in-law listening to this, I thank you. You don't need to describe a township to me, but if, if you're not, if you're someone from the West, it's, it's an, it's actually kind of an odd uh, thing. It's a township is essentially, it's a local municipality that is between the county and the city level, right? So you have, you have the county of, uh, 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 you know, uh, of uh, Cuyahoga, right? And then instead of going just to the city level, there's actually a township. And inside of that township, there might be multiple villages or cities inside of that, that township. So it's kind of like, a, it's like a mini county, essentially. I think we said last time uh, that that, that, I think we already said that that was like the worst tangent that's ever been. I think I just went down the second worst tangent. I agree. Or is this the worst one? Oh, no, this is the worst one because okay, the, one, yeah. the one relating yeah. to the Civil was War. Funny. Yeah, that yeah was, this yeah. was just as worse. Much. Because this isn't funny at all. Not at all. Please you know, send us your thoughts on townships. Uh, <laughs> email us and we will get back to you. Uh, but one of the things that these townships had was they had an, an office that people voted on called Overseer of the Poor. Well, that sounds pretty good. The idea behind it is some of the taxes, and by the way, all taxes in the 19th century are, are property taxes. They, they income tax doesn't exist. Okay, The progressive era never happened yet, so income tax doesn't exist. What does exist is property tax. And so the idea behind overseers of the poor was that they were to take some money that was set aside to aid, you know, if, if bill falls on hard times to help, you know, go, go buy some potatoes for bill and his family, you know, it, it's kind of this early attempt at a social welfare, which that's a, that's a beautiful concept, right? In practice, what most townships were most concerned with was making sure that nobody ever moved there that could ever claim any type of social help from the township. So they had the legal means of what they called warning out people. So if you showed up in a township and it seemed like you didn't have any money, they could come and give you an official warning out that said, you know, I mean, it's not quite like a spaghetti Western and you better not let the sun go down on you. But what did it do? It, it prevented you from becoming a legal resident of the township. And if you're not a legal resident of the township, well, then you aren't entitled to any of these funds for the poor. But more importantly, if you're not a legal resident of the township, you can't vote. So I guess I don't have to worry if two or three or hundred of you Mormons show up in the township and now might vote me as an anti-Mormon out of office because by warning you out, I make it so you don't have the ability to vote on me as the overseer of the poor. It's funny that, in fact, the, the function of the overseers of the poor, at least in these counties in Ohio, function far more as a way to not have to oversee the poor than it did to actually help the poor. And in fact, they did actually physically take people and remove them from townships all the time. This is employed pretty indiscriminately against the Latter-day Saints in, in, in the Kirtland area. In fact, some Latter-day Saints that we know 
have considerable wealth are warned out as threats of being a, a poor person in the township. You know, uh, you know, people like Frederick G. Williams, who own over a thousand acre farm, you know, better warn him out because he clearly wouldn't be able to make his debt payments. I mean, it's, it's true that one of the great complaints that's going to be made of the Latter-day Saints is that the ones who are arriving from New York generally show up with nothing, almost as if they were forced to leave everything behind them because God commanded them to move to another state. So they're going to arrive, you know, people like the Knights in, in Colesville who were, you know, middle-class prosperous people. They are going to arrive in Kirtland without anything because they left everything behind. So, so one of the recurring criticisms of early Latter-day Saints is that, well, there's just so many poor. There's just so many poor among them, and it's a really easy claim to make. No one wants poor people moving into their neighborhood, apparently, right? And that's, that's the argument that's made, that they are going to be a dregs of our society. They're going to be a weight pulling it down, and therefore we'll warn that. So that's one of those legal means that's made uh, to try to, to, try to draw, drive them out. And, and, and they also, you know, again, how brags about the lawsuits that, that they'll file against them to try to find means of driving them out of the county. Now, uh, that Joseph Smith is, is feeling this pressure is, is, is obvious as he's writing this to the saints. And in fact, as he's feeling this fear of Hurlbut, who's taken this, you know, this personal speaking tour and he's giving all of those antagonists exactly what they want before they are simply just criticizing Mormonism from the outside. Hurlbut is making claims like I know Joseph Smith. I was an elder in the Mormon church, which, you know, it's funny. Even today, you'll, you'll see occasionally like a Latter-day Saint will commit a crime and, you know, a newspaper will make a big deal about what their office in the church is, you know, you know, you know, Bill, a high priest in Mormonism, you know, which, oh, so you mean Bill was 50 is what you mean. I mean, like that, 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 uh, because we have a, you know, a lay clergy, uh, and a democrat, a democratized, uh, 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 priesthood um that essentially every man has some level of priesthood in the church you know and that 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 doesn't mean as much but certainly hurlbut's gonna be able to make that i'm an insider joseph smith's a liar that he that that's the reason why i want to kill him because he's such a liar but hurlbut isn't going to just make this kind of personal amorphous joseph smith is a bad person claim instead What's really going to gain some legs is that Hurlbut is going to claim that while he was on his mission in Western Pennsylvania, I can only assume in between uh, instances of fornication, that he happened upon the actual origin of the Book of Mormon. That in fact, the Book of Mormon was just a uh, it was a it was a a novel that was written by a former preacher um the the preacher is is now dead his name's solomon spaulding right and it's always best to blame something on someone who's who's dead because they can't make any make any arguments about it he claimed that that book 
that Solomon Spaulding, as this preacher, of course, knows the Bible very well, and that he wrote a book that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and others, they, they simply found and stole and printed it as the Book of Mormon. That they, you know, they erased Solomon Spaulding's name off of it and put their own name on it. This did a couple of things because part of the problem by 1833 and 34 of simply making the Jonathan Hadley argument that Joseph Smith's just an idiot, he couldn't possibly produce something that mattered, or the argument of Alexander Campbell in 1831 that Joseph Smith clearly is the one who just wrote the Book of Mormon and no intelligent person is ever going to believe that that's the case, is that by 1833 and 34, there are thousands of people who have read the Book of Mormon and believe that it's true. Well, how do you explain that? Look, if it's just five people who believe that Joseph Smith, you know, wrote, you know, translated the Book of Mormon, well, that's pretty easy to explain. Well, there's there's five stupid people everywhere, I guess. You know, you could throw a rock and hit five stupid people. But what happens when it's people that you know and you respect? Community leaders like Edward Partridge, religious leaders like Sidney Rigdon, pastors of other churches who will read the Book of Mormon and believe that it's true. The argument that the only reason why anyone believes is they're just uneducated and stupid, it's not a very good argument. The argument that the only reason people believe is that they're just a bunch of liars trying to lie to other people, yeah, that works when there's like four people who believe, but it's when it's your sister and your brother or your husband or your wife who believes, suddenly that argument that there must be a moral deficiency on their part becomes a less powerful argument. So if intelligent people are believing the Book of Mormon is true, and if moral people are believing the Book of Mormon is true, I need a better explanation of where the Book of Mormon came from. How is it that it's successful in convincing people that it's from God when it clearly isn't from God? Well, Philastus Hurlbut provides this explanation. The reason why people are being convinced by the Book of Mormon, why they think it sounds like Scripture, is a very educated pastor wrote it. The reason why it's, you know, not with, you know, Alexander Campbell's criticisms, you know, notwithstanding, the reason why it seems to seamlessly integrate biblical passages into the book in a way that 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 inspires people and convinces them it's from God is because it was written by an educated pastor. If you're saying that Joseph Smith couldn't have produced the book, I agree with you. Joseph Smith didn't produce the book. Someone else did. This argument, called the Solomon Spaulding uh, uh, account or argument, 
is that the actual origin of the Book of Mormon is this novel that was written. Now, now the pastor wasn't writing, you know, he wasn't like Joseph Smith. He wasn't, uh, according to, he wasn't writing this to try to convince people to, to, to create a new religion. He just, he just was writing a novel. It was Joseph Smith who took it and printed it as if it was from God, but of course it wasn't. And of course, Solomon Spaulding's dead, so there's nothing you can do about that. Well, you can see why Hurlbut's claims are going to make common cause with uh, people like Eber Howe. And in fact, the anti-Mormon committee of Kirtland is going to pay the good Dr. Hurlbut to go back to New York and Pennsylvania and to collect as many anti-Mormon affidavits, anti-Joseph Smith affidavits, as he can. So go to all the people who knew these Smiths and get all the negative statements you can about the origins of Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's life and so on. Well, uh, first of all, given the fact that Joseph Smith found essentially no converts in Palmyra and fled Palmyra to go to Harmony and then fled Harmony to go to Fayette to translate the Book of Mormon, it probably shouldn't be terribly surprising to anyone that someone who's being paid to find negative comments about the Smiths comes back with negative comments about the Smiths. That's actually the easiest part of the entire story to understand. That and return Jonathan as a name. Those are the two easiest things to understand here. Hurlbut's going to come back with a whole host of these affidavits that denigrate Joseph Smith, denigrate the production of the Book of Mormon, and and um, and do so in a, in, a, in a kind of personal attack upon Joseph Smith's character. They're going to all be collected and published in the very first true anti-Mormon book. Yes, you know, Campbell had published this pamphlet, essentially, this lengthy pamphlet attacking the Book of Mormon itself. But Eber Howe is publishing a book that is kind of a holistic anti-Mormon book. It's going to cover all the aspects of it. And and we'll publish these various uh, um, uh, these affidavits alleging perfidy uh, from the, the Smiths. So I'm going to read the title of the book to you. The book's called Mormonism Unveiled. Uh, but like many 19th century books, they decide to tell you the entirety of the book in the title, right? So you never had to wonder, oh, do you think this book talks about X? In the 19th century, the book's title made sure that you knew it talks about X. Um, so here is the actual title of the this anti-Mormon book, Mormonism Unveiled, uh, by Eber D. Howe. Mormonism Unveiled. Or, a faithful account of that singular imposition and delusion from its rise to its present time with the sketches and characters of the propagators and full detail of the manner which the famous golden Bible was brought before the world to which are added the inquiries of the probability the historical part of said Bible was written by one Solomon Spalding more than 20 years ago and by in him intended to be published as a romance. That's the title of the book. So you can see that the attempt is both to provide this explanation of what it calls the Mormon delusion with sketches of the of the character of its propagator. So it's it's designed to be a personal attack on the people that 
that have claimed its origin. And then appended to that personal attack is, oh, by the way, in fact, the Book of Mormon is actually from Solomon Spalding. And, and so even the very, the crux of what these Mormons claim to believe is even in and of itself false. I mean, look, here's, here's an example. I mean, I'm not going to read all the affidavits to you. I'll spend much more time talking about 19th century names uh, than I will reading the affidavits to you. But um, here's one of the affidavits. December 13th, 1833 from Parley Chase. The, the Chases live in, in Palmyra, Manchester area, right? I was acquainted with the family of Joseph Smith Sr. both before and since they became Mormons. And I and feel free to state that not one of the male members of the Smith family were entitled to any credit whatsoever. Now, what, what he means by that is that they were not considered credit worthy monetarily, that, that, you, that you couldn't loan them any money because they were, yeah, they were essentially, you know, the person who's got the car taken back from the title loan place. Um, they were lazy, intemperate, and worthless men, very much addicted to lying. In this, they frequently boasted of their skill. I mean, already you see some internal problems here, right? So what you're telling me is that the, what the Smiths loved to do most was lie, and they constantly told everyone how good a liars they were, which would suggest actually that they were pretty terrible liars. That's actually, you know, the main part. Um, Digging for money was their principal employment. In regard to their gold Bible speculation, they scarcely ever told two stories alike. The Mormon Bible is said to be a revelation from God through Joseph Smith Jr., his prophet, but this same Joseph Smith Jr., to my knowledge, bore the reputation among his neighbors of being a liar. The foregoing statements can be corroborated by all his former neighbors. Parley Chase, Palmyra, December 13th, 1833. So you, you see the way that this attack is made. The Smiths themselves were low credit people. They were poor people. They were liars. They were dishonest. So anything that comes from the Smiths must be therefore also dishonest. The Mormon Bible is a revelation to Joseph Smith. Now, I know that everyone who knew Joseph said that he was a liar. Well, look, the reality is Parley Chase might be telling the truth in the sense that Joseph Smith bore that reputation. Joseph Smith said that he could find none that would believe his vision. People persecuted him. He, As he said, he found it stunning that people would go out of their way to come persecute him and, and attack him for what he said that he believed. But these are the kinds of affidavits um, that, that make up this first anti-Mormon book. More importantly than these, uh, these affidavits, well, 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 I mean, some of the affidavits that are in this book, for instance, is an affidavit from Isaac Hale, Emma's dad. I mean, talk about some friendly fire, right? I mean, Isaac Hale, who for some reason is unhappy that Joseph, without his consent and against his wishes, ran off and married his daughter uh, without telling him, it, it is, is, is pretty steamed up. There was a time of detente 
you know, in 1828 and 29, when Joseph moves down and they live on the family, you know, farm. But after they had left, especially by the time they were to Ohio, Isaac Hale is, he's, he's spitting nails as far as things go. And he, he will publish his account, you know, uh, basically saying, you know, at least in part that Joseph Smith against his wishes married his daughter. That, that shows you what kind of person he is type of thing. There are many, there are many other affidavits and, and, you know, maybe someday we'll, we'll, we'll go through, you know, Mormonism unveiled, you know, affidavit by affidavit, but I can only imagine that that would be less interesting than even what this is. Um, but there's a lot of staying power to the affidavits in Mormonism unveiled. For a long time, and, and even up to the present, they were the primary antagonistic accounts and attacks that were made on Joseph Smith in his early life, to the point where today, if today you hear someone say something negative about Joseph Smith that's from his early life, it is almost a guarantee that it is from Mormonism Unveiled and these affidavits. These affidavits collected by this twice excommunicated fornicator, Phoasis Hurlbut, that he's the one delivering, you know, this wonderful information. And also the same man convicted for making physical threats against Joseph Smith and his family. Not by a Latter-day Saint, not a Latter-day Saint who says that, a non-Latter-day Saint judge who says that. But let's talk a little bit about character, right? So, so first and foremost, that's important to know. I'm telling you right now, in antagonistic, anti-Mormon material that's published today, the affidavits talking about Joseph Smith's early life are, are found on those websites and on those publications today, all coming from this anti-Mormon book. So there's a lot of staying power. Those arguments are just circulated over and over and over again. Secondly, even greater staying power than the attacks on Joseph Smith's young life, because eventually people are going to have other things to say about Joseph Smith, as you might be aware. They're going to attack other aspects of his life. Well, they the, the, the staying power of, of this early book is the alternative explanation of the origin of the Book of Mormon, which is really what everyone needs. The, these converts that are drawn to the church are claiming that they've read the Book of Mormon and they believe the Book of Mormon's true. The very fact that Joseph, this apparently illiterate person, has produced this masterful work that is converting people everywhere, you need the explanation of how is it possible I know he never wrote it at all. Like a true thief, he just stole it from someone else and claimed that it was his. This argument is so powerfully made and so often made that in the middle of the 19th century, when the United States Congress is trying to deal with the quote-unquote Mormon problem, they will make a reference to the fact that the Book of Mormon is just an invention, that it was actually a book by Solomon Spaulding that was taken and used as a fraud to, to propagate the book. That Solomon Spaulding was the actual author of the Book of Mormon is made as the primary reason 
to to throw out the Book of Mormon for for roughly half a century. In fact, more than half a century. It is the primary way someone says, "Oh, I believe." Oh, you know, the Book of Mormon is just oh, it's just Solomon Spaulding wrote that. That's what the United States Congress is saying for crying out loud. It's the way to completely denigrate the origins of of the Latter-day Saint religion by saying the very book that they treasure is in fact some guy's novel that they just stole. Now fast forward to the 1880s. In the 1880s, um, James Fairchild, who is the president of uh, Oberlin College, and uh, is he was very prominent in the anti-slavery movement. Um, uh, let me say something positive for Eber Howe. He might have hated Mormons, but he was a pretty courageous guy when it came to the the Underground Railroad. He's one of the he's a, he is a staunch abolitionist, and he actually helps hide runaway slaves as they're going north. Well. James Fairchild, who was also himself an abolitionist, this is all post Civil War, so you're you know you're now writing about this after the fact. He uh, wanted to to collect some of the papers of other people he knew that were involved in this effort to 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 try to you know fight against slavery and this you know that portion of Ohio is a very abolitionist portion of Ohio to begin with. And so he he seeks out a guy by the name of Lewis Rice. Well, who's Lewis Rice? Just another name to add to our, our, our giant stew of names that we've thrown out here. Lewis Rice is one of the people that takes over the Painesville uh, Telegraph, the newspaper published by Eber Howe in 1839. So he, he's going to take over the, the publication. He becomes the new editor of it. And so... Fairchild says, you know, do, hey, do you have a bunch of papers from, from that time period? I, I'm trying to kind of write a history and wanting to understand the things that were said. And they start going through Lewis Rice's papers. And what do they find among all the papers that he hauled out of the, 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 uh, the Painesville Telegraph office that, he, that he's kept with him? I mean, this is now 40 years later, right? What does he have? A manuscript a manuscript that is the Solomon Spaulding manuscript. So they, of course, know that this manuscript is supposedly the original Book of Mormon. Here it is. We have it. You know, Eberhaus said that he had it, but he never published it. And here it actually is. So Lewis Rice and James Fairchild FYI, not Latter-day Saints, very much not Latter-day Saints. They examine the book, this, this manuscript from Solomon Spalding, and they examine it against, against the Book of Mormon. Now, by this time in the 1880s, the argument of, of Solomon Spalding being the only origin of the Book of Mormon is so great and so powerful that even Solomon Spalding's kids are saying things like, oh yeah, I remember my dad like talking about Lehi and Nephi all the time. Yeah, it was like, obviously, you know, that was like a big deal to him. They, that th Even his children appear to be corroborating what the claim is. And that is that Joseph Smith stole this novel, you know, scratched Solomon Spaulding's name off the top and then wrote his on there. 
and that that's where it came from. Well, so Rice and, and Fairchild, they examine the Solomon Spalding manuscript. And this is what they write in conclusion. There seems to be no reason to doubt that this is the long-lost story of Solomon Spalding. Mr. Rice, this is James Fairchild writing this, Mr. Rice and my, myself and others compared it to the Book of Mormon. Now, now remember that the claim that's made is that this entire book was just stolen out of whole cloth. Just Joseph wrote his name on it, essentially as, by the way, I wrote this, and that that's where it came from. That you've got his kids claiming that Solomon Spaulding's walking around calling people Nephi and Lehi for crying out loud, right? What do Mr. Rice and uh, James Fairchild find? Compared it to the Book of Mormon and could detect no resemblance between the two, in general or in detail. There seems to be no name or incident common to the two. That is a pretty big statement, given the fact that for more than half a century, every single person, and I'm talking every professor who dealt with Mormonism, said that, well, the real origin of the Book of Mormon is from Solomon Spaulding. The solemn style, they continue, the solemn style of the Book of Mormon, in imitation to the English scriptures, does not appear in the manuscript. So, so one of the main arguments was the reason why the Book of Mormon kind of sounds like the Bible and has that kind of biblical language and it came to pass and so on is a pastor who loved the Bible wrote it. Well, that's one of the main claims. And here, James Fairchild is saying that solemn style in imitation of the scriptures, that kind of biblical writing style, isn't even in the manuscript. The, the, the writing of Solomon Spaulding's novel isn't even the type of writing of the Book of Mormon. It's not, it's not scriptural sounding. The only resemblance, he continued, is in the fact that both profess to set forth the history of lost tribes. And then James Fairchild, to his credit, gives the only conclusion you can give. After half a century of saying this is the only place the Book of Mormon comes from, and obviously every single Mormon is a deluded, idiot, liar, confused, lied to, tricked, whatever, he comes to the only conclusion you can come to, and that is some other explanation of the origin of the Book of Mormon must be found if any explanation is required. If you're going to make an argument of where the Book of Mormon came from, you can't make this one anymore is what James Fairchild says. Now, what's interesting about that is, like I said, leaders of government, leaders of religion, professors of literature and history, for half a century were adamant that the real origins of the Book of Mormon were the Solomon Spaulding Manuscript. They testified to it. They found sources that said it. His kids said it. And they were all demonstrably wrong. They were all proven to be totally wrong. But this changing face of anti-Mormonism demonstrates the problem when the sect goes from being 
four or five people that believe some crazy story to being thousands of people who now impact economics and politics as well as religion, the arguments become much more terse. The attacks on Joseph Smith's character that didn't exist in Jonathan Hadley's attack are the only point of Eber Howe's Mormonism unveiled. The dismissal of the Book of Mormon as something that couldn't possibly be anything that anyone would ever even read from Jonathan Hadley has by three years later become a complex, convoluted, and frankly, lie that that in fact the Book of Mormon was a very sophisticated book written by a sophisticated and intelligent preacher and that's where Joseph got it. You can actually see the wings of both sides of the argument vacillating back and forth because anyone who comes to know Joseph Smith seems to come to be aware very quickly that he wasn't capable of writing this book that is so powerful that it isn't just convincing the uneducated and the poor, but it's convincing the rich, the educated, the religious, and the moral. How could that possibly be? Well, we've got to find another explanation. Joseph Smith didn't write it, but someone else did. And what do they say after the fact that Joseph Smith doesn't write it? Well, they have to invent new arguments of its origin. And then they will begin making claims that Alexander Campbell himself didn't make, right? Oh, Sidney Rigdon actually helped him write it. Sidney Rigdon actually secretly went to... uh, he secretly went to to Palmyra and and cooked up this scheme with Joseph Smith and said, here's the manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Now I'm going to go back to Ohio and I'm going to pretend that I don't know who you are. And when missionaries show up, but it won't actually be you after you've already written the Book of Mormon, I'll pretend to read it and I'll pretend to believe it. And I'll also pretend, I guess, to get thrown out of my job and lose my house. But then uh, I, I will uh, you know, become one of the leaders in your church and we've cooked this all up together. What a wonderful conspiracy theory that we've hatched together here. And it sounds great if what you're trying to do is to find a way to sleep at night. But what's the historical evidence of this? Where are the accounts of people from the time making this claim? They aren't there. The reality is, it doesn't appear that Sidney Rigdon had any association with Joseph Smith prior to his association with Joseph Smith. But that's too hard to, of a conclusion to come to if you're someone who's looking to explain away the Book of Mormon. In fact, there are some scholars today who no longer try to explain it away. They simply say that maybe Joseph was able to fall into some kind of trance-like state where he somehow was able to dictate or auto-write the Book of Mormon in a way that was completely beyond his own capabilities. In fact, what you have, you have some people saying that maybe in some inexplicable way, Joseph Smith was able to produce the Book of Mormon. I think many Latter-day Saints would say, yes, but it's not an inexplicable way. It's through the gift and power of God. The Book of Mormon remains this evidence 
not only this testimony of Christ, not only something that brings us closer to Jesus to know uh, of, of, of the teachings and sacrifice of our Savior, but it remains this evidence that what Joseph Smith said he was, he was. This book that was entirely outside of Joseph Smith's ability is, is the proof that Joseph Smith saw what he saw, that he was who he said he was, and that this book really was from God, which is something that Doctrine and Covenants section 17 specifically declares to the three witnesses when they are to see the gold plates, the Lord testifies to them that the translation of those plates, the words are true. So we have God testifying along with those many others. So hopefully we didn't get too bogged down in all the different names and all the different types of arguments, but it's important to understand where these early antagonistic arguments came from and how they changed over time because there are people today who are still using pieces of these arguments, who are still using types of these arguments and are certainly claiming some of these same sources for these arguments. But that is, in fact, their their origination. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll look forward to catching you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.